to episode 40 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most lively host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. Season 4 is just beginning, and in this episode I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 3, Wednesdays, Ladies Free, and Episode 4, 3,000 Crooked Miles to Honolulu. Now, I am recording this during a mild heat wave, so I'm trying to to do this before it gets too unbearably hot, because I do not have air conditioning, and I have to record with my windows open. I'm not closing my windows and suffocating for this podcast as much as I love doing it, and as much as I love you all listening. I'm not willing to give my life. I'm selfish like that. So you will definitely be hearing background noises, particularly in my house, because someone is watching something in the other room at an ungodly volume, and it involves children screaming. Also, part of my Beat the Heat plan is to record this over two days, so you will get a variety of background noises over the course of the episode. So please, enjoy. Time to beat the heat. Let's go to Hawaii. Single, age 31. She was a nurse at Queens Hospital, Children's Ward. She left the hospital last night at 7.30. Time of death between 8 and 9. As usual, the neighbors heard nothing, saw nothing. No robbery, no signs of a struggle. Doc says she was not sexually assaulted. Any prints? Nothing yet. And no signs of breaking or entering. Same memo as all the others. Killer with the key? Well, they, um, let him in. Victim number four, didn't She was killed in her sleep under 50 cc's of Daniel given to her by a doctor, remember? Pulling the psychos again. Yeah, again. And check for people in the cosmetics business, a beautician, hairdresser, somebody like that, same as before. Really weird, the way you make each one look the same. Yeah, like a painted doll. Or a hooker. Season 4, Episode 3, Wednesdays, Ladies Free. Air date, September 26, 1971, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 12th of 36 episodes. And story by Paul Playden. This is his second of three episodes. And teleplay by Paul Playden and Jerome Coopersmith. And this is his sixth of 32 episodes. A nurse pulls into her apartment complex after her shift and goes to her apartment. Unfortunately, someone is waiting for her. He quietly kills her and then lays her out on the bed, applying makeup and a blonde wig, fulfilling his fantasy of claiming a particular woman. Steve arrives on scene and meets Jerry Rhodes, a private investigator who is also apparently working the case. Steve allows him into the crime scene. This is the fifth dead woman killed in this manner, all of them made up to look the same. Somehow the killer got in without breaking and entering. Jerry is obviously affected by the scene, and after he leaves, Steve calls him out on it. He doesn't want Jerry on the case anymore. Jerry's wife, Mary, was number three, and it's obvious to Steve that he's looking for revenge. Jerry denies it. All he wants is justice. Steve relents. Jay Fong speculates on the possibility of the killer using a pass key for all of the locks, but one key wouldn't work for the variety. He has made up a composite of what all of the women made up looked like. Steve orders the composite printed up and circulated. He speculates she might be a sex worker. Jerry hits up a bar and talks to the bartender whom he knows well. He asks if there's been anyone new in and the bartender directs him to the lady at the end of the bar, Sheila. 
Jerry at first acts like he's a John, but his line of questioning tips her off quick that he's looking for info on the blonde woman with the mole on her cheek. Sheila doesn't give in, but Jerry changes his tactics and she sticks around. Steve talks to a psychiatrist who speculates on the killer's motives. The woman might be real or a fantasy. She might be alive or dead. The man is a perfectionist. Single, possibly homosexual, but not necessarily. He might be impotent. He might be dealing with the sting of rejection. And that sting triggered his psychosis. Since he can't take it out on the woman, he takes it out on other women. If the rejection is recent, then the woman would be alive and they could find her. But if she's dead, he's going to keep on killing. Steve and Danny talk to a cab driver who remembers Mary Rhodes because she was a lousy tipper. In April, he picked up Mary at a restaurant where he saw her arguing with a man. He took her home only to find out that she left her purse at the restaurant. He took her back. The purse was there, but the guy wasn't. The cabbie knows him, too. Raymond Crimshaw. Rich family and a lousy tipper. Jin talks to Gloria Marshall, a madam on the island. She denies the girl in the composite is one of hers and that she conducts anything other than a legit escort business. Jin swears he's not there to bust anyone and tells her that as long as this killer's out there, no woman is safe. Gloria says to leave the picture with her and she'll ask around. Sheila takes Jerry home and he immediately starts ransacking her place, knocking her away when she tries to stop him. He finds her drug stash and uses it to threaten information out of her. Sheila holds out until he picks up the phone and dials for the police. Sheila gives up a name, Kathy Fields, used to be Haynes. She's married to an army captain now. And apparently living her happily ever after as she cooks for her husband. But she's got red hair now. She's also pregnant. Her happiness is interrupted with a visit from Gloria. Kathy tells her departing hubby that Gloria is an old friend and they have lots to talk about. Girl stuff. As soon as he leaves, Kathy wants to know what Gloria wants. Gloria shows her the composite drawing and says that's the girl the Strangler is really after, and it looks a lot like Kathy. Kathy refuses to help by going to the police. Her husband doesn't know about her past, and she's not about to ruin her happily ever after. As Vic Tanaka waits on a lady at the car wash, Steve talks to Raymond Crenshaw and his wife, who readily admits to the affair. It was a mistake, and he and his wife used it as the catalyst to fix their marriage. He doesn't think Mary's husband knew about it because he was never around. He also has an alibi for Mary's death. Steve confronts Jerry about the affair. Jerry admits that he knew, but he withheld that info to protect Mary. Steve asks what Jerry's obsession is with Mary's death if their marriage was over, but Jerry said it wasn't. They had it out and decided that they would give their marriage a second chance, but that killer took it away. That's why he has to find him. Steve boots him from the case. He's out for revenge, and he won't let Jerry kill the man. However, Jerry isn't deterred. He calls Kathy Fields as soon as Steve leaves. He blackmails Kathy into telling him where her little black book of clients is. She finally tells him that she gave it to a woman named Susan and gives him the address before pleading to be left alone. While Jerry finds the little black book and starts making some calls, the killer claims victim number six, the woman from the car wash. <laughs> It is not often that I question the judgment of Steve McGarrett, but in this case I do because he's allowing Jerry Rhodes to conduct his own investigation parallel to Five O's, and he does this by allowing Jerry actually into the crime scenes. Now, Jerry's just a private investigator, and I think it's kind of insinuated that Jerry was once on the police force 
and quit to become a private investigator. But the thing is, is that if your wife is supposedly victim number three and you are conducting this investigation, I wouldn't want you anywhere near it. I wouldn't want you anywhere near my crime scenes. That's just asking for trouble. And I guess it's a fondness that Steve has for Jerry that kind of clouds his judgment in this case. Because he does call him out and accuse him of wanting nothing but vengeance instead of justice. And Jerry's like, I only want justice. I mean, he admits that he'd like to kill the guy, but that's not what he's about. He's about getting justice for Mary. And it just occurred to me that as a married couple, their, their names are Mary and Jerry. And that's just a little too quaint for my taste. And I'm not exactly sure what Steve was hoping to accomplish by allowing Jerry to conduct his own investigation parallel to theirs and allowing him access to certain information because it doesn't seem like Jerry was too keen on giving up his own information from what he was finding during his investigation. And his tactics were far more questionable than Fivo's because we see their, their investigation happening parallel to each other. It's interesting because their investigations are together because Jerry is there when they're going, when Che Fong is going through all of the door locks saying that the pass key, one single pass key wouldn't work for every lock. They, he gives up the composite drawing of the woman. Then their investigations kind of diverge because while 5 is checking out the prostitution possibility and looking into the cab driver and all of that, Jerry obviously has a hookup at this bar with this bartender who's directing him to prostitutes. So he's kind of been on that angle already and he's been interviewing potential women who might know. And so he ends up talking to this new woman, Sheila. So he's actually like the entire time Five O is doing everything else. He's spending all of his time with Sheila. It's a bust at the bar, but he keeps her on the hook by playing a game with her and acting like, let's just kind of have a quote date since he's obviously kind of angling as not only a private investigator, but also possibly a John. Then he gets back to her place, starts ransacking the place, knocks her down and finds her drug stash. And uses that as leverage in order to get her to give up the name of the woman because he's convinced that Sheila knows who this is. Now, Sheila claims that everyone knows who it is because of the coconut wireless is what she calls it. But he's convinced that she knows more. Now, I got a feeling you know where the blonde chick is. So spill it. What do you want her for? And don't give me that insurance crock. I'm looking for a guy. The blonde chick knows him. No, I won't tell you. Get lost. Now you're the one gets lost, baby. One telephone call. Her name's Kathy Fields. Used to be Haynes. She's married to an army officer. So while he's doing all of that, 5 is on the other side talking to the madam, Gloria, who I love. She's wearing a fabulous dress. She seems like a very composed professional businesswoman. She is the madam I aspire to be. And she deals with Chin Ho, who is persuasive in his own little Chin Ho way. Ah, oh, come on. I'm Chin. So he assures her that he's not going to bust anybody, that he's only looking for information. And he appeals to her wanting to protect her girls and every other woman in Honolulu. Because clearly, Gloria takes care of her girls and she does have some concern about the strangler. 
Then we also have Danny and Steve talking to this taxi driver who apparently picked up Mary Rhodes a lot because Mary didn't drive. She didn't have a license. So she used cabs everywhere and this taxi driver picked her up quite often and remembered her primarily because she was a lousy tipper. So he recounts his fare with her right before she was murdered back in April. I picked her up outside a restaurant on Kalakawa, you know, semi-stoned and arguing with this guy. She got into my cab and asked me to drive her home. But when he got there, wham, it hits her. She forgot her purse in the restaurant. And the keys were in it? Right, so we turn around and go back. Keys were still there? The keys, yes, but not the guy. Well, the guy, uh, do you remember his name? Oh, everybody knows him. He's always in the papers. He's a big commander family on the island. But also a lousy tipper. Uh, Crenshaw, Raymond Crenshaw. The reason why he didn't come forward prior to this was that he was on the mainland for six months and he didn't realize that Mary had been killed. So it's been a while since her death. But they get a lead out of that, so they go talk to Raymond Crenshaw, who readily admits in front of his wife to having this affair and says that it was a mistake. It convinced him and his wife to give their marriage a second shot and put things back together because they seem to be a very loving couple as they're playing tennis and his wife is standing by him being very supportive. Good luck to you, crazy kids. He also has an alibi for Mary's murder. The two of them were on the big island at a party. So that's kind of a dead end, but not because that leads Steve to have his confrontation with Jerry. So you know about Crenshaw and my wife? Yeah, I know. And not through any help of yours. Well, it's not the kind of thing a man brags about. No one's asking you to brag, but you withheld vital information on this case to protect her. So Steve kicks Jerry off of the case. I don't know if Jerry had ever intended to give Steve the information about Kathy or if he decided that because he'd been kicked off the case that he wasn't going to give the information about Kathy to Steve. I think it's the the former. I don't think he had any intention of telling Steve about Kathy because he is dead set on getting the man who killed his wife. So Steve ends up leaving without Jerry sharing this information. Jerry has a big upper hand over Steve because Steve is basically trying to figure out what connects all of these women and what kind of killer they're up against. And that's when we get this profile of this killer who has apparently been spurned by rejection. It's a tale as old as time when it comes to men and their delicate feelings. They cannot handle rejection. And so the theory is that he is recreating this woman who has rejected him, taking his aggression out on these other women because he can't get to her. And they speculate that if she's alive, they might have a chance of finding her and then putting a stop to all this because they'll be able to identify who this guy might be. But if she's dead, he's just going to keep killing until someone finds him and stops him. The thing is, is that while I find this fascinating... In the fact that he he does have to sort of take out this aggression on other women because he can't find his object or he can't take it out on the object of his rejection, which is classic case of several serial killers. Edmund Kimber comes to mind. He makes them up to look like this woman. By the time we're done, he's killed six women, supposedly. And yet, 
his makeup skills are questionable. I would have thought that after maybe the second or third one, he might be seeing some improvement, but it he's still getting pretty wild with the lipstick. The mole's nice, but uh, the application of the eyeshadow is, is something. The women end up looking... Chin Ho says they look like made up like dolls. I think they look more like drag queens, garish horror movie versions of drag queens. There's also a matter of he puts a blonde wig on every single woman. I would have thought they would have investigated wig dispensaries in Honolulu because I would think it would be noteworthy that a man came in and bought multiple blonde wigs. I would have just thought that that would have stuck out to somebody. Apparently not. Guess they didn't go for that angle. So 5-0 is, is a few steps behind Jerry when it comes to investigating this case. Now, Gloria, our madam, has obviously recognized the person in the picture, and she goes straight to Kathy, who is now living what Gloria calls the dream that they all say they want. She's married to an army captain, she's pregnant with their first child, and she's also dyed her hair red, but she still has the mole. So when Gloria shows up, it is definitely an unwelcome blast from the past, but Kathy covers it well, and it's clear that Gloria is not there to disrupt any part of her life. She doesn't give away anything. There's no, like, subtle double entendres or, or sneaky barbs about her past. She's literally just there to say, Kathy, the strangler is looking for someone, and I think it is you, and you need to go to the police and help them out. And the thing is, is that Kathy is so afraid of losing what she has that she is willing to sacrifice every other woman on the island to keep it. And you kind of understand that. Because particularly back then, the stigma of sex work is so, so strong. And you have her married to an army captain. That sort of stigma coming down on him, I don't think he would take it very well. And she's pretty convinced that he wouldn't take it very well. So she is more interested in preserving her life than helping the police out. And you, you kind of understand it, but it's also kind of frustrating. Which is why it's such an effective blackmail tool for Jerry when he calls Kathy and asks for her little black book. She at first lies and says that she burned it, but he knows she didn't. And he threatens to tell her husband about her past if she does not disclose where it's at. So she finally gives it up and says it's at this woman Susan's apartment. And he goes and he ransacks this woman's apartment and finally finds it. It's shoved in a couch cushion. And he retrieves it. And his plan is actually quite brilliant. He goes through every name in the book and gives them a call. Says that Kathy's back and she's taking appointments. And I don't know how many bites he got from that. I don't know how many names were in that book. But we see at least one man say, thanks but no thanks and don't call me again. But when he gets to Vic Tanaka, he has to leave a message with the answering service. And it's Vic Tanaka that comes back. Now, we've only seen Vic Tanaka a couple of times up until this point. We've seen him. Well, technically, we did see him in the first victim that we saw. So victim number five's apartment. You can see the outline of him. And if you know who Sunteko is, you, you knew who that was. But we see him after the psychiatrist is explaining the motives of this killer to Steve. We see a brief shot of him. Then we see him at the car wash in which he's taking a car from a woman to be washed. 
and she ends up being victim number six. So hopefully the viewers are able to put together all of the math there and come up with the fact that yes, Vic Tanaka is the killer. So Jerry leaves a message with his answering service and of course Vic calls back because Kathy is the woman that he's been looking for and makes an appointment to see her because Jerry claims to be her manager. And the only time available that she has immediately is 10 a.m. the next morning. Now, keep in mind, Vic has already killed victim number six. And Vivo is already on that scene and looking into it. And Steve, of course, is getting very, very frustrated. So they work all night long trying to figure out what the connection is between these women. And they end up plotting their lives on a map. And they realized that every single woman either had been in or passed through a particular part of the city. So they start investigating everything that's in that vicinity, which leads them to the car wash where Vic Tanaka works. And his boss outs him because Steve says that he would have had to have been working there at least six months. And at first the car wash boss can't come up with anybody, but then he's like, oh no, wait, there's this guy. He's part-time. He only works on Wednesdays when the ladies are free. Ladies get their cars washed free. And that's what clicks for Steve, that all of these women probably got their cars washed at this car wash because the way it worked is that you had to hand your key over to the attendant. The attendant put your car through the car wash. So that would have allowed Tanaka to make an impression of their keys and get their keys. And that's how he was getting to their houses. So they're putting this all together. They go looking for Vic Tanaka. Unfortunately, Vic Tanaka is currently on his way to Kathy's house. And he's about to walk into Jerry's trap with a very unsuspecting Kathy as bait. <laughs> You know who could lure me into a trap? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Jerry Rhodes is played by Monty Markham. This is his second of four episodes. We saw him previously in The Double Wall. Kathy Fields is played by Sheila Wells. She was Dr. Frankie Warren on Dr. Kildare. She also appeared in episodes of My Three Sons, Laredo, The Green Hornet, The Wild Wild West, Mod Squad, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Bonanza, Dan August, Cannon, Streets of San Francisco, Barnaby Jones, Quincy M.E. in Grand. She appeared in the movies The Blues Brothers, Island of the Lost, and Love and Kisses. And she was in the TV movie The Scarlet O'Hara War. Vic Tanaka, as I said, was played by Soon Tak Oh, This is his fourth of eight episodes. Gloria Marshall, our madam, was played by Marie Windsor. She appeared in episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, Bourbon Street Beat, The Rebel, Lassie, Maverick, Hawaiian Eye, Perry Mason, Rawhide, Bonanza, Batman, Bracken's World, Gunsmoke, Barnaby Jones, Adam 12 and the new Adam 12, Mannix, Marcus Welby MD, Fantasy Island, Charlie's Angels, The Incredible Hulk, Lou Grant, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Tales from the Dark Side, Simon and Simon, and Murder, She Wrote. She appeared in the movies Commando Squad, Lovely But Deadly, The 1976 Freaky Friday, Hearts of the West, Cahill, U.S. Marshal, Support Your Local Gunfighter, Chamber of Horrors, Mail Order Bride, The Day Mars Invaded Earth, The Unholy Wife, The Killing, Swamp Women, Two Gun Lady, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, Hell's Half Acre, The Jungle, Force of Evil, and Song of the Thin Man. She was in the TV movies, The Perfect Woman and Joe and the Colonel, and she was in the miniseries, Salem's Lot. 
Dr. Holmby was played by Danny Kamakona. This is his 10th of 33 episodes. Sheila was played by Marjorie Battles. This is her first listed credit on IMDb. She was also Lila on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. She appeared in the episodes of McLeod, Ironside, Quincy Emmy, Del Vecchio, Police Story, and Police Woman. She appeared in the movie Lucky Lady, and she appeared in the TV movies Dominic Stream and Panache. Hank Field was played by Norman DuPont. This is his third of ten episodes. He was also in the episodes In a Time to Die and Ten Thousand Diamonds and a Heart. Yoshiro was played by Kwan Hai Lim. This is his fourth of 25 episodes. Angela was played by Charlotte Couch. This is her only credit. The bartender was played by John Farias. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in the box. And in an uncredited role, Frank the car wash owner was played by Robert Luck. This is his fifth of 12 episodes. And that is Wednesday's Ladies Free. I rather like this episode. I feel like the murders are compelling. Particularly, you have this killer who's so obsessed with this woman that he's making his victims up to look like her. And you also have the dual investigations happening. And there's this final twist that brings it all together in such a, a way that is just really, really satisfying and also plays as a final gut punch. So I truly enjoyed this episode, and I think you will too. Give it a watch. If you have to bleed, bleed in private. I, I don't want to watch it. What do you got? Some flag from the mainland. What is it? A shootout in Chicago, a three-state gambling ring busted, and an armored car heist outside of Denver. Outside of Denver? Yeah, on the highway. You ready for this, Steve? They use an army bazooka. Two drivers burnt up like a couple of pieces of toast. What was the haul? Three-quarter of a million in traveler's checks. Traveler's checks? Yeah. There's a serial number. Mobs must be slipping. Fencing this stuff is like trying to sell hot badges at a policeman's picnic. Episode 4, 3,000 Crooked Miles to Honolulu. Air date October 5th, 1971. Directed by Jerry Thorpe. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. And written by Jerome Coopersmith, this is his 7th of 32 episodes. In Colorado, a car stealthily pulls into a drive and creeps along to a secluded spot. Two men get out, retrieve some equipment, and ascend to an ideal spot to fire a bazooka at an armored car carrying worldwide traveler's checks as it emerges from a tunnel. The next day, the two crooks arrive at the airport where Professor Ambrose Pierce is hosting a faculty discount club trip. The two men join him and let him know they have the traveler's checks. The club then boards a charter bound for Honolulu. Five-O receives a teletype alerting them to the traveler's checks theft, along with the serial numbers of the stolen checks. Steve thinks the robbery is foolish given how difficult it is to use stolen checks. He calls Agawa at the local worldwide traveler's checks place. Agawa assures him that they'll get the numbers out to all of the usual local businesses. It's the end of the Friday business day, though. He leaves the task with his not-so-thrilled secretary, Luana. As Agawa leaves, he tells her to leave the filing cabinets unlocked since he'll be in the next morning to do some work. Agawa leaves, but someone else is still there, watching Luana. She realizes this too late, and then the lights go out. She goes downstairs to check the fuse box and finds herself trapped with a killer. 
He later leaves a typewritten note in the typewriter for Ogawa saying that the serial numbers were taken care of, and then takes care of the serial numbers by stealing them. On the plane, Professor Pierce is relaxing with his muscle George and George's friend Soldier when club member Davis apparently becomes violently ill, stumbling about and babbling incoherently about two days and checks. The stewardess says she'll alert the captain to have an ambulance waiting at the airport despite Pierce's protest that he'll be fine. Despite this obvious aberration in the plan, Pierce is still confident. However, he again protests Davis being taken away by ambulance when they land. The doctor attending insists, and this time George steps up and agrees, asking that Davis receive the best of everything, including a private room. Pierce says that's very kind of him. Turns out it's very strategic. In a private room, Soldier, disguised as a serology intern, receives orders from a nurse before killing Davis with a silent shot to the head as soon as she leaves. He steals his envelope, full of traveler's checks. Pierce distributes everyone else's checks at the hotel with instructions to spend everything and keep receipts for everything they buy. They're going to turn these checks into cash. Steve and Danny investigate Davis's murder. The nurse explains that she left Davis with the intern, but then notices the envelope missing from his things. She later goes through the mug books to see if she can ID the fake intern, while Dano checks into Davis and Steve goes to talk to the professor. Steve informs Pierce of Davis's death, having tracked him down from the airline, and Pierce is surprised. He gives Steve what he knows about Davis, which admittedly isn't much, and tells him that the other club members are currently scattered about the island, sightseeing, going on tours, and probably buying everything in sight. He gives Steve a list of their names. Steve then calls him out on his lack of info about Davis, citing that the stewardess told him that Pierce said they were close. He said it was a little white lie. The man was obviously very sick, and he didn't want to further upset him by admitting that. Steve isn't quite satisfied, but he leaves. As soon as he does, Pierce lays into George about the unnecessary violence. George explains that the violence is necessary because when they were brought into this plan, they agreed that they would be protecting their investment at all costs. This notion sickens the professor, who just wants to be a thief. Some of the stolen traveler's checks have turned up in Philly, so Five-O thinks they don't have to worry about them anymore. Except they do. Because Davis is not Davis, the nurse IDs the killer intern, Luana's mom reports her missing, and a shopkeeper is naturally suspicious. Now, there's an interesting setup when it comes to the villains in this particular episode. Because they pretty much explain at the beginning in a conversation that's had between Pierce and George on the plane to Honolulu, which by the way, Pierce is played by Buddy Epson and George is played by David Canary. So you're having this conversation with Barnaby Jones and Adam Chandler. You know, in ancient days, man used to measure time by the orbit of the earth around the sun, but that was highly inaccurate because the earth does not move at a constant rate of speed. You might say that man has improved on nature. You sure got a lot of stuff inside your head, Professor. Thank you, George. I guess I do. But then we all have our own importance. Brain, nerves. Don't forget about the muscle, Professor. I never forget anything, George. Ever. As this plan is set up, this team is set up, Pierce is definitely the brains. He is an actual professor. They end up establishing that later when it turns out that Davis is a fake. But he's an actual professor, but he's also got a genius head for numbers, and I guess he got busted for card counting and running a system in Vegas. 
a very successful system. And so this is his plan. And the plan is they have obtained stolen traveler's checks. They have prevented the numbers from being circulated in Honolulu, where they are. This club, which is made up of supposedly faculty, but as evidenced with Davis, maybe none of them or not all of them are faculty in on this scam. But they acquire these traveler's checks and then they go about and spend it. So they're spending it and getting cash for them. And they're keeping all of the receipts because they can return the merchandise for cash. They stole three quarters of a million dollars worth of traveler's checks. They're looking to spend about half a million in Honolulu between this entire group. It's a lot of friggin' money. So he is obviously the brains of this. And it is a brilliant scheme when it comes down to it. I mean, it's a great way to, to make 500 grand for a weekend. There, of course, is the, the hangups of acquiring the checks and preventing them from being circulated. And that's where George and Soldier come in. It's established later that they are basically mob muscle. And so there's some inferences that the mob has interest in this uh, scheme as well. But there is a battle between the brains and the muscle about how things get executed. When Davis gets sick on the plane, obviously his mutterings are troublesome. Pierce seeks to control the situation by not having him go to the hospital. But even though he does, he figures, okay, they'll sedate him or treat him. They're not going to make much because he's obviously coming across as very ill and he's delusional. I think what the nurse says later is he's got Meniere's syndrome and possibly a tumor pushing on his eardrum. That's what's causing the, the vertigo and babbling in his behavior. So even with this hiccup, Pierce is pretty confident that the plan is going to go off without a hitch and is genuinely surprised when George offers up the concept of the club will pay for everything at the hospital, make sure he gets a private room. Which, when you think about it, it's smart. A roommate's not going to be there to witness anything, and the doctors and nurses will probably just take his babblings as nonsense. However, this is actually because George is going to have Soldier eliminate Davis to help protect their investment. And Pierce later, when Pierce finds out from Steve that Davis not only died, but he was murdered, he instantly knows that George was behind it when he confronts George about this. And George defends himself by saying he's protecting the investment. It ends up being very clear by the end of this that Davis's murder ended up being their undoing. That that was, as Pierce calls it, unnecessary violence. He was not thrilled that they used a bazooka to kill the people in the armed car, armored car, to get the traveler's checks. He was not happy about that was their way of executing that portion of the plan. And he sees the Davis murder as even more unnecessary. And he's right, because if Davis hadn't been killed, 5-0 would not be investigating. The unnecessary violence further complicates things and is even more so their undoing when Luana goes missing. We see her working late. She has to type up all of these numbers, get them all ready. And it's like 300 businesses that she's got to send these out to. And she's got them all in the envelopes and everything. She senses that someone is watching her, and we know someone is watching her. And when she goes to investigate, the lights go out. So she, because she has apparently never seen or been in a horror film, goes downstairs to check the fuse box. And when she gets in that room, the killer has followed her and locks her in. And her fate remains unknown largely throughout the episode, because Pierce, when confronting George about Davis's death, 
asks if he killed the girl too. And he says, no, you told us to put her out of the way for a few days. And that's what we did. Well, we later find her out of the way in like a trash bin somewhere on the block by the business murdered. So it's her murder as well that sort of brings it all together. Davis's murder brings Fivo in. Luana's murder brings them down. And I guess that's the best you can hope for for Luana. I mean, after all, she was stuck working late on a Friday night and then she gets killed. So at least she gets to send some people to jail. So on the flip side of things, on the 5-0 side of things, 5-0 thinks that they have the traveler's checks issue well in hand. And Steve thinks that it was a bit foolish for whoever stole these checks because they keep a record of the serial numbers. And when checks are stolen, the serial numbers go out and the businesses don't accept those checks. They alert the authorities. Back then, traveler's checks were supposed to be a more secure form of currency when you were on vacation. They were just as good as money, but more secure because you had the list of serial numbers with you. You had to sign the checks. So it was better than cash. Cash was too anonymous. It's easier just to steal cash and spend it. There was a whole series of advertisements back in the day starring Carl Malden about traveler's checks. And it was, a, I think it was the American Express traveler's checks. Don't quote me because I can't remember 100% and I'm not looking it up. But there was a whole ad campaign. The people at home watching probably could relate and probably had a better working knowledge of traveler's checks. Back in 1971, this was a very relevant thing. And Steve had a point. This would be very foolish for them if they didn't have Professor Pierce there instituting this plan which prevents the serial numbers from going out. So they're actually not worried about that. They don't get involved until, like I said, Davis is murdered. They can't figure out why this professor who is there for this tour with all of these other academics, they can't figure out why he would have been shot to death in the hospital only like within an hour of landing and him being sick on the plane. But Steve goes and he tracks down Pierce through the airlines and speaks with him and informs him of Davis's death. And Pierce does not give him a whole lot about Davis, saying he knew Davis but not very well. And so Steve calls him out. One more question. Yes. The stewardess on the plane said that you told her you knew Mr. Davis well, that you knew his condition was not serious. A little white lie, Mr. McGarrett. I could see he was deathly ill. I didn't want him to know it. Steve seems to accept that, but he's got that look on his face, that little glint in his eye going, hmm, that's a little suspect. So he goes back to 5-0 and asks for the rundown on Davis to try to figure out what's going on. He also wants all of the other group members found so he can see what they know about Davis. So the nurse has come down to look at mug books. She's going through there being very diligent. Danny is looking into Davis. Everyone is doing their things. Steve checks in with Agawa after some of the stolen checks turn up on the East Coast. They turn up in Philly. So that was a great diversionary tactic on Pierce's part. All of this investigation and actually all of the stuff with George and Pierce too, it's all intercut with bits of the group spending. It just, it just shows people signing the checks and buying merchandise and all of this. And it's also intercut with phone calls of everybody calling and reporting in. 
So everybody's reporting in how much they've spent and are they're getting reminded to keep their receipts. And it also gets intercut with our killer calling in. He's keeping an eye on the worldwide traveler's checks place. So he checks in when Agawa shows up and Agawa finds the note that he thinks is from Luana in the typewriter saying that she's taking care of the serial numbers so he doesn't worry about it. So that's why when it comes back later during all of this investigation stuff, we find out not only that Davis isn't Davis, in fact, the real Davis is on vacation in France. They find out that he is a crook with mob ties who once used a bazooka to rob a bank. And they see that as significant considering that the Traveler's Checks heist was hit with a bazooka. Around this time, Steve gets a call from Kono. Garrett. Steve, this is Kono. I'm in missing persons. A woman here named... Kono, can you speak louder, please? I can't hear you. That's Mrs. Mawalai. She's got a daughter missing, age 23. Works for Worldwide Travelers Checks. She never came home last night. What do you think, Steve? Any connections? Yeah, check it out. Get over to Worldwide right away. See what you can find. So Luana's mom's going to be wailing for a while once she finds out that her daughter is dead. They are now on the search for Luana, as well as looking further into Davis. And when it's discovered that Davis is a fake, Steve goes back to Professor Pierce and questions him about that insinuating that other members of the group might be fake, might not be faculty, might be criminals, and that he himself might be a fake. And he does this by bringing up someone that the professor should know. So you see, Professor, I've worked out a plan to help you. Right here in Honolulu, we have a man who's lectured in colleges, universities all over the United States. In your own field, as a matter of fact. He says that he knows you very well. Must be your colleague now. Steve? Press Jordan, come in, come in. I got here as fast as I could. That traffic was really murdered. Ambrose? Elias? By George, it's been a long time. Seminar at Caltech. Summer of 64. You read a paper on ferroelectric field effect studies at low temperature. <laughs> yeah, I read your rebuttal in 65. <laughs> With an open mind, I hope. <laughs> Who did you want me to meet? You've just met him. You're kidding me. Have a nice evening, Jim. And it's a great scene because you're right there with Professor Pierce thinking, is this where I get caught? Because I wasn't anticipating this aberration in the plan. But the guy that Steve brings up actually knows Pierce and they end up spending the evening, Saturday evening, having drinks and talking about old times. Sunday finds 5-0 technically on their day off, but looking for Luana. So everybody's actually in street clothes. Chinho and Kono are wearing Aloha shirts. Danny's in a polo. Steve is just looking fabulous. He has a white and black Aloha shirt, white pants, matching ascot. Stunning. They're on the hunt for Luana. And Danny sadly finds her. And Steve is also on the hunt for Ogawa, who he knows is golfing because he's been giving Ogawa hell throughout the episode every time he talks to him, teasing him about his slice and Ogawa saying, well, we need to get up a foursome sometime. 
That's a golf term, in case you weren't aware. So they get Agawa. They actually send a car out to the golf course to bring him into Five-O because they need to speak with him now. They're not going to wait. And Steve asks about Luana and he says, oh, yeah, she got the numbers out. She left me a note saying she did. And Steve's like, yeah, she's been missing since Friday night. She didn't come home. And then they get the call from Danny that she's dead. They also at this time... Chin Ho gets a call about the stolen traveler's checks, two of which have turned up at a Honolulu establishment. I think at a restaurant because he says something about them sitting at different tables. But the guy is is chatting away with his co-worker there. He's going through the till. He gives somebody some change. And he looks in the till and he sees two traveler's checks. And they're sequential. But... They're from two different people who were sitting at two different tables. They weren't even together. And he finds that suspicious. And so he calls it in and Chin Ho lets Steve know. So it's discovered that the serial numbers never made it out. So Luana was sadly murdered before that could happen. So Steve realizes that this is all coming together. Davis's death, Luana's death, and the stolen traveler's checks. The thing is, is that it's also coming together for Pierce and George in their group because the professor wanted to pull out as soon as 5-0 tried to discredit him. But George told him that pulling out now and leaving now would look more suspicious and would bring the feds down. So the muscle, with the help of a revolver, convinces the professor to stick around and see this whole thing through. And again, listening to the muscle may just be the brain's undoing. You know who's got the brains, the muscle, and everything else? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Professor Ambrose Pierce was played by Buddy Epson. He's probably best known as Jed Clampett on the Beverly Hillbillies or as Barnaby Jones on Barnaby Jones. But he was also Sheriff Matthew Brady on Corky in the White Shadow, Sergeant Hunk Mariner on Northwest Passage, and Roy Houston on Matt Houston. He also turned up in episodes of Maverick, 77 Sunset Strip, The Twilight Zone, The Andy Griffith Show, Rawhide, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Alias Smith & Jones, The Yellow Rose, Burke's Law, the 1994 continuation, and King of the Hill. He appeared in the movies Captain January, Banjo on My Knee, Silver City Bonanza, Utah Wagon Train, Night People, Between Heaven and Hell, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Interns, Mail Order Bride, the one and only genuine original family band, and the Beverly Hillbillies movie as his Barnaby Jones character. And he appeared in the TV movies, The Andersonville Trial, The Daughters of Joshua Cabe, The Horror at 37,000 Feet, The President's Plane is Missing, Smash Up on Interstate 5, The Paradise Connection, Working Trash, and The Reunion of the Beverly Hillbillies. As I said, George was played by David Canary, probably best known as Adam and or Stuart Chandler on All My Children. He was also Candy Canaday on Bonanza, Russ Gearing on Peyton Place, and Steve Frame on Another World. He also turned up in episodes of Gunsmoke, Cimarron Strip, Alias Smith & Jones, Kung Fu, The Rookies, SWAT, Touched by an Angel, Law and & Order, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. He appeared in the movies Johnny Firecloud, Posse, Sharks and Treasure, and Ombre, he appeared in the TV movies Incident in a Dark Street and Melvin Purvis, G-Man, and he was in the miniseries The Dane Curse. Frank Agawa was played by Tommy Fujiwara. This is his seventh of 24 episodes. 
The cashier was played by Galen Kim. This is his fourth of 11 episodes. Luana was played by Lonnie Kim. This is her first of four episodes. She also appeared in two episodes of Magna P.I. The stewardess was played by Joanne Larson. This is her only credit. Soldier was played by Charles Bolig. This is his first of three episodes. Nurse Higgins was played by Judith Meredith. This is her first of two episodes. She was Betty Kramer on Bid and Casey, Monique Devereaux on Hotel Dupree, and Bonnie Sue McAfee on the George Burns and Gracie Allen show. She also appeared in episodes of In Squad, Yancey Derringer, Laramie, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, Gunsmoke, Have Gun Will Travel, Wagon Train, Rawhide, The Virginian, Bonanza, Mannix, Ironside, and Emergency. And she appeared in the movies Something Big, Queen of Blood, Dark Intruder, The Raiders, Jack and the Giant Killer, and Summer Love. And in an uncredited role, Mr. Chang was played by Yankee Chang. This is his sixth of 17 episodes. The ambulance attendant was played by Winston Char. This is his fourth of 18 episodes. And Mr. Beale was played by John Alexis Howard. This is his third of nine episodes. We also saw him in Savage Sunday and The Late John Louisiana. Our director, Jerry Thorpe, this is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O, but he directed 29 episodes of December Bride, 4 episodes of The Walter Winchell File, 10 episodes of The Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, 9 episodes of Westinghouse Desi Lu Playhouse, 3 episodes of Craft Mystery Theater, 8 episodes of Kung Fu, 7 episodes of Harry O, 3 episodes of The McKinsey's of Paradise Cove, 2 episodes of Chicago Story, 2 episodes of Our House, and 4 episodes of One West Waikiki. He also has directing credits for Day of the Evil Gun and The Venetian Affair. He also has directing credits for the TV movies Dial Hotline, Company of Killers, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, Smile, Jenny, You're Dead, I Want to Keep My Baby, The Possessed, Sticking Together, Happy Endings, and Blood and Orchids. He also has 40 producer credits, including 32 episodes of The Untouchables, 63 episodes of Kung Fu, 45 episodes of Harry O, 46 episodes of Our House, and 22 episodes of Falcon Crest. And he has production credits for several of the movies and TV movies he directed. And that is 3,000 Crooked Miles to Honolulu. I quite like this episode primarily because of how much I like the plan. And the cleverness that's inherent to the plan. And I also like the tension and the back and forth between Professor Pierce and George. And the battle between the brain and the muscle. It gives 5 a real challenge to solve this case. And I do absolutely love how the episode ends and how it all comes together in that final scene. It is just perfection. This is a pretty entertaining one. Give it a watch. is episode 40 of Bookham Dano. Two episodes that I quite enjoyed. They both present 5-0 with rather unique challenges. In one episode, we have a serial killer with obvious issues intertwined with a man's quest for personal vengeance, kind of gumming up the works, and then we have a great twist ending. And in the other one, we have this really well-executed plan, very clever plan that literally only attracts Fivo's attention because the muscle gets a little overzealous. And again, it's a great ending. So yeah, 
two strong episodes in this episode. And thank you for listening to this episode and for suffering through this heat wave and this insane background noise with me. I always appreciate your ears, even if they are overtaxed and troubled by my own issues. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also check out my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. I will take this moment to encourage you to check out my Patreon page. I revamped my Patreon. I've got several projects going, several different tiers available. You can totally find something that you like. And even if you only want to give me a dollar a month just to say, hey, I like you and I want you to have my money, I would appreciate it. And if you'd like my pleas for money in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So make sure your makeup skills are sharp and your violence is necessary. Until next time, aloha.